Alrighty, if you uh, have been with us since 2010, uh, you may uh, know our brother Chaz. He was here on our very first Saturday night service here. He actually helped lead worship. And uh, he actually has a, a relationship with all of you. If you call OVCF your church home, uh, brother Chaz has a very integral, very important uh, role in your uh, spiritual life. And you, you didn't even know it. Uh, he is part of uh, our accountability board. We have a, when we set up the church, one of the things that we, God really put on our heart and we felt it was absolutely essential is we have an accountability board of uh, three guys uh, that are, don't even live in Ojai. Actually, they're all down in San Diego County. And uh, that is very intentional on our part. And, um, you know, that, that just helps uh, this body stay true to what God calls us to be and what God calls us to be, which is true to his word. Okay, so uh, Brother Chaz, Pastor Chaz, is a part of that accountability board, so he loves you all, he cares about all of you, and he <laughs> and you love him, yeah, so you're going to really get to know him now. Um, I, I, I've known him way back, he knew uh, Nadine and I before we got married, uh, I think he might have known me when I first started, I met him maybe when I first started going to a small group before I wasn't even a believer, uh, he sort of mentored me in, in youth ministry, and we served together to kids to Arizona and all kinds of stuff together, so kind of learned the ropes of youth ministry and ministry through this guy, and I uh, love him dearly, and uh, so blessed that God worked it out for his schedule to, to be with us, so come on up, Brother Chad. Thanks, Brother. Good morning, everybody. Truly an honor to be here with you. Uh, I see that Richie's taking to heart the scripture that says uh, the shepherds to feed the flock. If you don't know this, the number one energy-consuming thing that your body does is digest food. As a minister, uh, you learn pretty quick that if you want to have energy when you're teaching, you don't eat on Sunday mornings. And so that you're hopeful that your people don't necessarily eat big meals before they come to church either. But for those of you who are here this morning with us early, as Wendy so aptly put it, um, Richie doesn't like competition, so he wanted to make sure that you guys were all really full. If you're noticing that the church temperature is much warmer than it is normally, that as well, it'll help you uh, kind of drift off during our time together. But no, um, it's, it's an honor. And this is a, a true statement. I have dreamed since I was a young boy of living in Ojai. True statement. The reason being is that as a young boy, I watched a lot of television. And it was kind of fun today to come to your church and to see Grizzly Adams giving the announcements. Because as a young boy, I dreamed of being an astronaut. And the worst case scenario, which was kind of the best case scenario, is that my, you know, my reentry vehicle would kind of disintegrate coming back in and I would lose body parts and live and have to get turned into the real bionic man who everybody knows was from Ojai. And so driving to church this morning, just seeing the sign, the Welcome to Ojai sign, which was at the beginning of every single episode of the $6 million man, was like flashback of, Lord, you've just got such a great sense of humor for your kids. As a young child, I, grew, I dreamed of this place in a different setting, obviously, because I ended up going to college to become an astronaut. I wanted to be the first Samoan astronaut. When I entered high, uh, college, I was 5'10 and 165. 
I grew to this before I graduated, and I literally outgrew an airplane. Had a full ride scholarship through the Air Force officer training program, and I was going to be a Simone astronaut. But I literally outgrew an airplane because even though I'm six feet four inches tall, I'm like Tyler. I have 30 inch legs. I can't sit in an airplane. I, I'm too tall for a fighter jet to sit. And so I lost my dream to be an astronaut. <laughs> what did she say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And it's one of those things to where, isn't it interesting how God has a plan for us that isn't necessarily our plan, but it's the best plan. And it was a really interesting thing for me this morning is to see that you're going through a study on the end times on the midweek with Bill, which, I mean, thank you for the exhortation. I wish I'd be here uh, for that. But this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation. Not going to give you a big, deep teaching today because, number one, you're not going to remember most of it because you're just way too <laughs> sated from breakfast. But also, you've got a great teaching pastor. And so his heart for me today was simply to tell you a story, a life story, basically a testimony. Because you've been going through a series now for the last three weeks on what do we do with the truth? What do we do with this truth? And he's hoping that my testimony will kind of give you some insight into maybe what we should all be doing concerning the truth. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 10. Only read three verses. And I'm only going to focus on the sandwich verse, the meat of it, in verse 11. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we understand that this book that we call the Bible reveals to us your great power, but it also reveals your great love and compassion for us because you give us the end of history written out for us so that we'd understand that you really are in control. And just as Bill shared this morning, Lord, you sovereignly cause things to happen and allow things to happen that all fit to your plan. And your plan is that the lost of this world would know that you are God and turn away from their lostness and be found in Christ. And so this morning, we're thankful for this opportunity to hear from your spirit as you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a key verse for me in my life. Revelation chapter 12, 11. If it's not one that you've underlined it, I suggest that you do look over at the person next to you. If they haven't underlined it, go ahead and help them out and underline it for them. <laughs> Revelation 12, 11 is the formula for a victorious Christian life. And it's three really simple things, right? Look at that. What's the very first one? What is the first of the formula for the victory, victorious Christian life? The blood of the Lamb. Jesus has to be part of the equation to a victorious Christian life. You can read books that are great for psychology, great for sociology, great for anthropology, great to give you knowledge about certain areas, but if you want to have a victorious, Christ, victorious Christian life, it's got to begin with the blood of Jesus. Second thing, 
And this is the thing that I think that we don't quite understand that is amazingly powerful is the word of our testimony. What's God done in our life? What's God done in your life? Do you realize that when you talk to somebody about what God's done in your life, they can't argue with you? They either have to accept it or they reject you as a liar. Now, we can get into theological arguments and debates with people all day long and make no hedgeway with them. But when it comes to us telling our story, wow, people just sit back and go, that's crazy. That's like so crazy that it can't be true. But you're sitting right here in front of me and I've worked with you for five years and you seem like the type of person that wouldn't lie to me. And could this really be? See, when I was uh, born, I wasn't expected My parents are both from the islands of Samoa. One, my dad is from American Samoa. My mom was from British Samoa, which then became Western Samoa, and now is just Samoa. If you don't know what Samoa is, watch the beginning of every Olympics. They're at the beginning and at the end for American and Western. And the American Samoans will come in looking like tribe people, and the Western Samoans will come in looking like tribe people with suit coats on. You know, we wear lava lavas. Do not call them a skirt, like I almost just did. The men wear these like kilts. They're just Polynesian kilts. But because of the influence of the British on the Western Samoans, they took those kilts and made them into something that looked more uh, plain, like gray. And then they put a shirt and a tie and a jacket on. And they don't go barefoot like the American Samoans do. They wear sandals. So it's very interesting to see that. But that's my heritage. But my dad was in the military, an army guy. Two tours in Korea, one in Vietnam as an infantryman. But I'm number seven out of six, and after number six, they told my mom that she'd never have another child. Seven years later, my mom thinks she's pregnant. My mom goes to the doctor and says, I think I'm pregnant. The doctor says, you're not pregnant. We told you you can't be. My mom says, I've been pregnant eight times before, have given birth to six live children. I'm pregnant. They tell her, we think that you've got a tumor. We'd like to go in and do a biopsy. My mom says, they don't know what they're talking about. Sure enough, a few months later, I'm born. Doctor hands me to her. She takes one look at me and looks at the doctor and says, is it too late to do the biopsy? (laughs) Needless to say, growing up, I wasn't an expected child, and my parents were pretty much at that stage of life to where they were kind of transitioning into wanting to be grandparents and watch uh, Vanna and Pat. And so my growing up in the Midwest, I grew up in a small town called Bay City, Michigan, uh, because that's where my dad chose to leave San Diego, California, to take a National Guard post and six months later retire there instead of staying in San Diego, California and retiring there. All part of God's plan. I'm very thankful for my Midwest upbringing because it gave me a very solid, I believe, upbringing, much more than I probably would have ended up in in jail knowing Tyler uh, in a non-good way had we stayed in Southern California. But growing up in the Midwest, um, I hated it. Um, I hated this thing called winter. I hated wet snow. I hated the thought of snow. And people kept telling us, I was four years old when I moved there. And I was already complaining at five about winter. And people were saying, oh, you'll adjust to it. I never adjusted to it. Genetically, we're just not supposed to be where it snows. And so the day that I graduated from high school, the very next morning, I'm 16 years old, I got in a car and drove to San Diego. I told my parents, I said, I am so sorry, but I just can't stay here anymore. It's just wrong. And plus, my dream was to get to Ojai, and I had a brother in San Diego. And so I go. And so sure enough, I go, and I get into the uh, 
San Diego State. I get a full ride scholarship. And my goal was to become an astronaut. And it was really about being the first Samoan astronaut. It wasn't just about being an astronaut. It was about some type of, I'm the youngest of seven kids. I'm the young, the, there's six boys, one girl. And all my brothers were something. I mean, they musicians, athletes, brains, you know, and this was my thing. That this, I was going to make my mark. And sure enough, I was on the track to it, but it just wasn't God's plan for my life. And so through that whole situation, I met my wife uh, in the Air Force officer training program. She was bio pre-med, real smart girl, supposedly, but she married me. So <laughs> we get married, and on our honeymoon night, God blesses us with a baby. So I'm 19 years old at that time. My wife is 20. Uh, we have child in our second year of college. And then all of a sudden life really changes. And all of these things happen to where I graduate in a four-year officer training program at the uh, second in my class. I'm on a five-year engineering scholarship for aerospace engineering. And somewhere in my last semester of college, after working my way through college with a wife, and then by the time I graduated, two children, I got kicked out of a program that I had already finished. And it was one of those things to where, well, this is kind of interesting, Lord. Because of the situation that happened, a, an attorney, an advocate was sent from the headquarters of uh, the United States Air Force. He went over everything, and he looked at it, and he said, this is ridiculous. He says, we can get you back in just like that. He said, however, if you had ever thought about leaving and not going into the military, this would be it. Well, I told you I'd grown out of that airplane, so I couldn't fly. Well, I also developed allergies, which meant I couldn't be a navigator in a plane. I couldn't do anything in a plane, which meant that since I was a full-ride scholarship student, I had to have what was called a rated position. And in the Air Force, there's only three rated positions, a pilot, a navigator, and a missile launch officer. Missile launch officer goes in a hole for 48 hours at a time, waiting for the little red phone to ring so that you and your partner down there can put keys in, turn them at the same time, and send interballistic missiles back at the USSR at that time, USSR, so that the world can end. Now, for somebody who's dreamed of going into space, the vast, unconfined limits of outer space, the thought of 48 hours in a hole in the ground with another guy that's going to become your best friend and life partner after the, the red phone goes off, basically, because you're the only ones alive, it was a nightmare. And so when I got kicked out, it was like, oh, my gosh, Lord, you're really good because I didn't owe a cent and I didn't owe a day. And so then I was like, okay, Lord, now what do you want me to do? Well, at that time, I'd been working in the surfing industry and serving at our local church. And that's where I came to know Richie. And so we went from being thinking of the vastness of outer space to thinking of the vastness of the lost in the space that we call Earth. And so through that all, it's like, okay, Lord, this is amazing. You are so amazing. And through that time now, God's given me a heart for ministry, for people, of not becoming one who goes to the moon, but basically one who helps people to get to is the guy who made the moon, to get to help people to see the vastness of an eternity that can begin right now through a right relationship with Christ. See, I was raised in a very devout Catholic family, altar boy all the way through high school, as a senior in high school, I was the only kid in high school who was an altar boy. So by default, from my freshman year on, I was the senior altar boy. And as a senior altar boy, my responsibilities were making sure that the wine and the hosts were well stocked. Well, I kind of took my job description a little bit farther. 
and I kind of became the cupbearer to the priest. So on a weekly basis, I made sure that the wine and the host were of good quality. God is extremely gracious. Because if I was God, somewhere along the line, I would have at least gotten a little scare of a lightning bolt somewhere near that I was treading on the communion elements and seeing it as my private once-a-week little party. You know how about you say, you know, when he read the scriptures about I rejoice when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Once I became the head altar boy, I was rejoicing every Sunday. My parents saw such a change in me, and they thought it was like this great spiritual revival that was going on in their son. It's like, oh, no, I love church because I get drunk as a kid for free. And then you go through life, and you look back at these, and we laugh at these now, and I think to myself, God, you're gracious. Because if I'm you, I spank me hard. I'm coming. My dad was military, uh, infantry, and a, a, a drill instructor. We got spanked hard it's like living nowadays we see what's going on with everybody getting in trouble i said our parents would have been in jail my mom hit me upside the head with a cast iron skillet can you tell which side (laughs) but through all and and that's a true story but i deserved some type of some some type of repercussion for what i was doing at that time But, but you look at all these things and you look at this and you come to the fact that wow god You're in control and you're gracious. And that testimony of what God has done in our life helps other people to see, well, wow. You were sharing earlier about people coming in and seeing, wow, they're normal. I guess I can stay. I think it's just the opposite, right? When people come into church, they see that you're normally abnormal. And they're not holy rollers and they're not all having halos. They don't all have wings and they're not all floating because they're so holy. But you see that, wow, they're normally abnormal people but they have something that i don't have and it's the joy of the lord it's the relationship that exists that we understand the older we grow in the lord totally by his grace you know when you're young in the lord we take a lot on ourselves about us we talk about our when we came to the lord about how when we found jesus and as you grow older in the lord you start to realize It's just like the little kid who's got his plastic tool belt on who helps dad, supposedly, and comes in and tells mom, daddy, or mommy, I fixed fixed the washing machine, and daddy helped. The older we get, we start to realize that when we came to the Lord, it's like, we were lost. And there was a very gracious God who actually reached down into the muck and the mire and took us out and cleaned us and said, I love you. You're like my favorite little... Uh, toy right now. My my grand, I've got seven, six grandchildren, seven and eight are on the way. But my eldest just turned four last week. And so um, she's into Frozen. If you have grandkids or grandkids, you understand. The Frozen is, I've, I saw the movie once, and it was all right. But I knew if I wanted to bless her, I was going to get something for, fro- for, you know, had to deal with Frozen. And sure enough, got her a little set at Walmart with both. Elsa and the sister, whatever their names are. And then... (laughs) A voice from beyond. Well, well, Friday night was my my son, my youngest biological son's uh, last football game. And the four-year-old comes and who she got in her hand? Elsa, the present. My daughter says, she hasn't let go of that thing since she gave it to her. 
Well, she's got her sister, but they, can't, they fight occasionally, but this is the one that she's holding on to. And you know what, beloved? That's how God looks at us. We're prized possessions. Scripture tells us that we're the apple of his eye. That little Elsa doll right now is the apple of her eye. But you know what the difference between her and God is? A week from now, it could be something else. Or a month from now. But you know what? With us, the Lord, we're always the apple of his eye. Gosh, that's an amazing concept. That the Holy One of the universe loves us so much. The scripture tells us that we're in the palm of his hand and nothing and no one can take us from there. That's great encouragement, isn't it? It's great encouragement knowing that since we all know that the rapture hasn't happened because Doris is still here, that even if it had happened and Doris is still here and that this becomes the reality show of Left Behind, that guess what? We're still the apple of his eye. You cannot go through Scripture without seeing that God is extremely gracious and long-suffering and compassionate towards us as people and that, as he says in his word, he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. That he who began the good work in us is faithful to complete it. And so the beauty of this all is that we do our best to continue to focus in and to lean on him and to grow in him and to take this truth that we get from his word as we've been studying over the past couple of weeks and apply it to our lives. But in essence, we're not even trying to apply it to our lives. We're trying to apply our lives to its truth. We're trying to apply our lives to Jesus, the way, the truth, and life. And as we do that, God opens up opportunities for us that we would never expect. I'm flying on Thursday to the Ukraine to go and train pastors to be chaplains to their military. I happened to be in the Ukraine a year ago doing something completely different. And then this came up out of the blue, and I said, you know what, I'm supposed to go. I don't have the training, quote-unquote, to do this officially. I've had the training, but I don't have the certification. But I just said, I think I'm supposed to go, and I let them know. And they said, yeah, please come. And because I'm going now, I happen to be going this year on their 22nd anniversary of the church that's hosting it, and I'm speaking to do their 22nd anniversary Last year when I went, I was there on the very first day that they split and multiplied into two services, and I was the one to preach at their first, second service. And I also happened to be the very first non-white person to ever be in their pulpit. Rich, you will attest this. I'm just some knucklehead kid who thought he was going to be an astronaut and live in Ojai. Amen. And so God took my friend and put him in Ojai... We call it that way, or we can also say that God, you know, the, the people in San Diego kicked him out of San Diego, and they had such a strong foot that he landed in Ojai. But it's this beautiful picture of how, you know what, this testimony that God's building in all of our lives is an amazing thing. I, I want to end here on a story with my dad. My dad is 89 years old. Uh, he was married to my mother for 62. She passed away six years ago. At that time, um, my brother, one of my brothers, the white sheep of our family, moved in to be with my dad because we were concerned. After 62 years together, we thought, you know, dad's probably going to go join mom pretty quick. Fortunately for us and for, I think, for my dad, my mom uh, basically had broken her hip and she spent like six months in a quick deterioration. And during that six months, my dad wanted to be her home hospice giver. And so... There would be a nurse who would come in weekly for a check, but he basically 24-7 for six months took care of my mom as she left planet Earth. When my mom passed away, 
we believe that because my dad had to deal with it on a daily basis, he had kind of already come to peace and to grips with her passing, that it would be good for her. And then also near the end, that it would be good for him because it was kind of killing him, all the work of taking care of her. But when she passed, the very first week, you know, we're kind of my, especially my one sister, you know, when you have one sister and she's like near the oldest, she like runs the family and she was so concerned that daddy was going to leave. It's like, sis, if it's dad's time to go. It's dad's time to go. But she wanted to make sure that he was okay. Well, sure enough, within the first week, dad went out and bought a new set of golf clubs. <laughs> People don't buy new sets of golf clubs usually when they're thinking that they're going to go. The next week, dad went out and bought a new 60-inch screen television. People usually don't buy those things. The next month, dad went out and bought a new car. Needless to say, dad's still fine. Dad is driving himself to the golf course four to five times a week at 89. Still shoots usually better than his age and loves to drop on the young military guys that he's playing with somewhere in the round. When they say nice shot, that he'll say, not bad for an 89-year-old guy, huh? <laughs> and then begins their humiliation process of losing to an 89-year-old guy. Makes my dad feel great. But my dad had a stroke about three years ago, mini stroke. We were <laughs> playing golf. And he literally had a mini stroke on the golf course, I know. <laughs> 16th hole, it happened, and we kind of watched him and said, Dad, something's not quite right with you. He said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm going to finish. And we watched the 17th, 18th hole to where he finally said, you know what, yeah, I think there is something wrong with me. I think it should go. Took him to the doctor. Doctor sent us to an emergency care, emergency care sent us to the hospital. It was just me and my dad. We were in the emergency room at the hospital, and my dad had a Filipino nurse, a male nurse, and I'm just sitting there, and my dad kind of said to him while we're waiting for the doctor, are you Filipino? The man says, yes, sir. He goes, oh, my son over there is a missionary in the Philippines. And he goes, oh, I used to go to CCF. And I replied, Christ Commission Fellowship in Manila? He goes, yeah. I go, great church. He goes, I'm a Buddhist now. And so here I am. I've been labeled as the missionary. My dad's in a hospital bed having had a mini stroke. This guy has just said he's left Christ to go to, a, to Buddha. And I'm going, okay, Lord, what do I say? What do I do? How do I, 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 and all of a sudden, my dad speaks up. And my dad goes, excuse me. He goes, yes, sir. He goes, did you say that you left the Christian church to become a Buddhist? And he said, yes, sir. My dad goes, shame on you. <laughs> and so my 86-year-old dad then goes on to say, you left the living God to go follow a fat little statue? And right then and there, I realized that, you know what, Lord, if you give me 80-some years, matter of fact, if you give me 70 some matter of fact, if you, well, you know what, God, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to take the fact that you've gotten me through 50 years of life and use that as a platform that wherever I'm at to talk to people about what God's done in my life. Because he, my dad saw that as an opportunity to tell this guy about the Jesus that loves him and that he loves and to exhort this young man because of his silver hair and the fact that he's a patient in a hospital and he can't, that nurse can't get him upset, <laughs> to tell him about the truth and the reality of Jesus. That's what our life testimonies do. This is what defeats the devil. The blood of the Lamb in our life, the fact that we will actually tell people the testimony in our life, and you know what? To the point of we don't care if you're going to kill us or not. I have to admit, I played golf three times this week, knowing that I'm going to a, war, a country that's kind of in a war-type situation, going, I may never get to play on this planet again. But you know what? I don't care. And my wife, while she cares, also realizes, you know what, honey? 
God has totally taken care of us all of our lives. 32 years we've been together now. Uh, 26 kids. We have six kids. We adopted 20. Grandchildren number seven and eight are on the way. The last thing I want to do is not be around for those grandkids growing up. But you know what? I serve God. And when you serve God, you understand you do what he wants you to do. You follow him step by step. You apply yourself to this truth that he's given you. And guess what? (laughs) Nothing and no one can snatch us from the palm of his hand. Therefore, regardless of how bad the situation is, guess what? We're okay. Now, in ending, the flip side of that is that we don't just run out in front of cars. You know what? Because if it's not my day, nothing's going to happen. I said, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, there are things going to happen. It may not be your day, but this isn't necessarily the way that God wants us all to go down. So there has to be wisdom exercise. But in the end, you know what wisdom really is? Beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Actually having a relationship with Him to I worship you, I honor you, I reverently fear you, which means I'm going to be obedient to whatever you call me to do. It may look like idiocy to the people around me. Moving to Ojai when you're a Filipino to go work in a church there may look like idiocy to everybody around. Or even having the dream as a young child, I'm going to live in Ojai someday. Most people back then, you know, they thought it was OJ. Yeah, all those midway. Yeah, we can't. Maybe we want to go to OJ and meet Steve Austin. It's like then I found it was Ojai. Oh, and here I am today in Ojai, being blessed to be among you. Being blessed, as Richie said, to be part of you through the fact that I get to look out for my little brother. You know, I hear from Bill all the time. Bill's emailing me all the time about Richie, so don't worry. He's he's got prayer cover. Yeah, but that's what we're here for. As, as a body to encourage one another to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to see those good works that God has prepared for us before the foundations of the earth that we would walk in them. So my exhortation to you, my brothers and sisters this day is be glad. I'm, I'm, I could be some of your sons. You may not admit that, but I'm old enough at least to be some of your sons. And, and it's an honor to be here with you. And some of you it could be your dad. I'm old enough to be your dad. Some of you are old enough to be your grandpa back there. And so it's one of those things to where this body that God has given us, the body of Christ, we're here to encourage one another to help everybody cross the finish line. If you've seen that video of the kids running at the uh, Special Olympics, have you seen that one where they're doing like it's the 100-yard dash, but they all take off running at the Special Olympics, and somewhere along the way one of them falls. And as the others that are closest notice they fall, that someone has fallen, they all stop, and then the entire group stops. They walk back, they help the one who's fallen get up, and then they all cross the finish line together. See, that's why that's Special Olympics, because in the real Olympics, that don't happen. People try to figure out ways to make the other people fall with nobody knowing. But the body of Christ, we have a choice. We can be like the real Olympics. Where we can be the special people that God has called us to be, and that's to help one another cross the finish line together. So, Father, I'm so thankful for your word this morning. I'm thankful for these sweet, sweet people. I'm thankful for the fellowship that's here. I'm thankful that we know that the rapture hasn't happened yet. The Lord, it's not based upon any of our works, but it's based on the fact that with an act of faith that even the Scripture tells us that you gave us the faith, that we've been sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit and that you, the sovereign God of the universe, see and know us each and individually where we're at. You know our hearts. You know what's going on. But more than that, God, you see us as the finished product. 
You see the end result because you who began the work in us are faithful to complete it. Thanks for being a faithful God this morning. And as we take time now to come to your communion table to be reminded of the faithfulness of you, our God, who would send His only begotten Son to pay the price for us. Lord, we do this to honor You. Lord Jesus, You are so worthy of so much more than we're currently giving You. But Lord, we thank You that You're patient and long-suffering and that You're working all these things out to us so that when we give it to You, it's not out of compulsion or obligation, but it's literally out of a heart that's choosing to give You a free will offering. So continue, Lord, to minister to us. Continue to minister to us.